Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning, Wildwood. Hey, it's great to see you all today. And uh, very excited that we have the opportunity to look into God's Word together. If you've been around Wildwood the last several months, you know that we've been walking through the book of Romans. It began last fall in Romans chapter 1, and we're now in the 13th chapter of Romans, as we have seen a number of different things about how the power of God extends salvation to us, and we have seen that in its implications over a number of months now. Um, Over the next six weeks, we're going to be in a series that will take us from chapter 13, verse 8, to chapter 15, verse 13. Um, But before we begin to unpack the first installment in that series, I want to ask you to do something that uh, I don't ask you to do very often, but that is to take the uh, bulletin that you got when you walked in and to open it. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but I'm going to have you do something specific with that bulletin today, and that is to take it, and on the inside back cover, there's a section there where you can write some notes down. And so I want you to to open to that section, and I want you to grab a pen, and I'm going to have you write one word on that piece of paper. If you don't, if you didn't grab a bulletin, that's okay. You may have a piece of scrap paper around you. If, if you don't have a piece of scrap paper around you, you may have a cell phone that's got a notes app, but find something to take a note or write something down with, and I'm going to have you write down one word. And that, this is the word I want you to write down. I want you to take a moment and write down one word that from your perspective describes a Christian's life. What is the one word that you would say describes a Christian's life? So take a moment and and write it down. I know some of you, when I ask you to do this, are like, great, if you would have told us there was going to be a pop quiz, I either would have come later or I would have studied. I'm just saying what your first response, what what was the one word you would use to describe a, a Christian's life? All right? What is that word? I'm not going to have you, uh, thank you, we've got one humility, that's beautiful. Uh, I'm not going to have you all share those things, but I want you to be thinking about that, what that word would be. Uh, Some of you might say a word like humility. Some might use a word like devout or religious. But others of you have had some negative experiences with followers of Christ, and and you might want to describe it as hypocrite or as self-righteous. There are a number of different words that we might use to describe a Christian's life. But here's the bottom line. When you think about all the different words that we might come up with, uh, to some degree, those words are inconsequential. It doesn't matter so much what I think is the appropriate description of a Christian's life or what Sam thinks is the appropriate description of a Christian's life. What matters most of all is what Jesus would describe the Christian life as. What's the one word that Jesus would place over his followers and say, this is what I want your life to be about. This is what I want it to be characterized by. And thankfully, in the Word of God, we have Jesus telling us what that one word is that he would use to describe a Christian's life. And you know what that word is? Love. Now, I know that there are some of you that are going, oh, it was on the board the whole time. I could have written it down and got it right. You know, we all have... Different, different personalities and neurosis, but uh, here's the thing. When we think about um, 
the, the word love as a word to describe the Christian's life, it, it could describe it in a couple of different angles, right? People came to Jesus and they said, tell us what the greatest commandment is. And how did he respond? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said that is the primary commandment. And so when we think of what it means for love to characterize the Christian's life, certainly we think of love in a vertical relationship, our love for God, and that makes sense to us. But it's interesting that Jesus kept talking after he said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. He continued talking and he said, the second commandment is like it. The second commandment supports it. The second commandment is tied so intimately together that you have to do one to do the other. And he said, that commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus described the Christian life as a life of love both for God and for others. Now, here's the question that that might come to our mind. What is the connection? Why is it that Jesus would would call us to love each other, and how is it that that command would be on par with loving the Lord your God? Now, there's an analogy that maybe will help us to make sense of that a little bit, and it would have to do with a friend who is getting married. You know, we live... Uh, in, a, in a time and a place, and many of you have experienced this, uh, where there are a number of blended families. There are people who get married who already have children. If you had a friend who was getting married who already had kids, and their prospective spouse uh, said to your friend, I love you, but I hate your children, would you encourage that spouse to go ahead and get married? No. Why? Because there's something deep inside us that, that understands that to love someone, you also have a love for their kids. It's something that you cannot really separate. And in the same way, Jesus tells us that how can we have love for a God that we can't see and yet not have a love for his children that we do see? Friends, when we think of a description of the Christian life, we are called to love each other. Love is to be the descriptor over our lives. And we're going to see that over the next six weeks as we look at Romans chapter 13, 14, and 15. And today we're going to begin as the first part of this series by looking at Romans 13, verses 8, 9, and 10. And so if you've got a Bible, open up to Romans 13 and turn in it to to verse 8. Uh, We're going to camp out in these three verses today, and and as we look at them, we're going to see three things that will encourage us in the concept of love characterizing our lives. Romans 13, 8, 9, and 10. The Apostle Paul writes, and this is what he says. He says, "'Owe no one anything.'" except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now in these three verses, we're going to see three things about love. The first thing we're going to see about love is this. Love is a debt we never repay. Love is a debt we never repay. Now, that is phrasing that maybe isn't familiar to us, so I want to go ahead and tell you exactly what I mean by that, then we'll see how it's anchored in this passage. 
What I mean by that is that love is something that is never exhausted in our life. We don't love people for a week and then get that out of our system and then go back to our normal way of operating. But we are called in Christ to always be loving to those around us, to always have a sense of this debt of love that we are always paying forward into the lives of others. Now, where does that come from in this passage? Well, it's anchored for us in verse 8. Paul mentions in the beginning of verse 8 that we are to owe no one anything. Now, this makes sense to us if we remember the context of Romans 13. Pastor Bruce walked us through Romans 13, 1 through 7, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and some of the verses that we saw there in verses 6 and 7, we saw this call for Christians to pay our taxes. Christians are to pay the debts that we owe, including our taxes to the government. Well, after talking about what we owe to the government, he then begins to talk about what we owe to our, the citizens that live underneath that government. What do we owe to each other? And it's ramped up. See, we're called to honor governments. We're called to obey governments. But friends, we're called to love the citizens that live underneath that government. Takes it to the next level. We're not to owe anything to anyone except that we would love each other. Well, what is he talking about when he says that? Now, when he talks about owing no one anything, many have seen in those words uh, primarily a financial principle, that this is somehow a a biblical prohibition against ever borrowing any money. Uh, While certainly Christians are to be responsible in money that they borrow, I don't think that Romans 13, 8 is primarily talking about financial dealings. I think that Romans 13.8 is primarily talking about the way we view other people, and he's using finances as an analogy here. You might think of it this way, we are to view people not for what we can get from them, but for what we can give to them. You see, in financial transactions, it's possible to view those transactions as merely something that we can get something from them. Think about it in terms of a loan. If you go to a loan and you have no intention of ever repaying it, but you sign the dotted line, you get the money and you spend it, and you never pay it back, you ultimately are hurting the one that is lending to you. In the same way, if you are lending money to someone and your primary concern is to charge a high level of interest so that you can take something off of their back in response, then your primary intention is not to help them, but to hurt them. See, Jesus in his parables would talk about the practice of putting money in the bank and gaining interest, and he would talk about lending as a part of life. I don't think that there is a strict prohibition against it, but the principle that is illustrated here is that we are not to view people as individuals that we try to get something from, but someone that we can give something to, and that what we are called to give them is love. We're called to have a sense about us that we need to pay forward the love of God to others around us all the time that will never come to maturity. We're always paying forward this love. It's a debt that we will never pay off. Now, where does that idea come from that we're to have lives that are characterized by love? Well, ultimately, it comes from Jesus. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 says it this way. 
says, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Why are we to engage those around us with love? Because we have first been loved. God has loved us in Christ. He has forgiven us in Christ. He has equipped us with the Holy Spirit in Christ. He has reached out to us and made us a part of his family. And part of the product of that is that we are to pay forward that love into the lives of others. We respond to God's love by loving God's children. Jesus taught this in his parables. And in Matthew chapter 18, um, Jesus tells a, a story in, in chapter Chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, he tells a parable about a landowner who forgives a large debt that a servant had against him. And then that servant who had this large debt forgiven against him goes and tries to collect on a a small debt that somebody else had against him. And the landowner gets upset in that parable that Jesus tells and says, how is it that you who are forgiven much can be so unforgiving Of a debt so small. And the principle is clear for us, friends. Why are we loving to others? We're loving to others because God has first loved us. Why are we forgiving to others? We're forgiving to others because we have been forgiven. We are called to pay forward the love of God to others as a response to His love for us. That's why we are to love and to pay that forward. But who are we to love? For to love because God has first loved us, who are we to love? Now, that, that question is a question that we often ask. If not out loud, we, we certainly ask it in our thoughts. And, and really, what are we saying when we ask the question, who am I to love? We're saying, who, who do I not have to love? Who do I not have to love? There, there's a sense where we want to find the limit of love. We want to say, yes, I'm called to love, but I get to decide who is the recipient of that love. Yes, I'm called to love, but I will apply that only uh, to my roommates and my sweet mates at, on the OU campus. Or I'm going to call to love, but I'm going to apply that only to those in my immediate household. I'm called to love them, but, but not others. Or I'm called to, to love, so I'm going to love those who are my best friends at, at Norman High or at Norman North or at a middle school here in town. I'm, I'm going to love only those that I like, but, but I'm going to put a limit on it and say I'm called to love them, but not others. Friends, that's the way we want to think. That's the way we practically live often. But we're not given that option as Christians. Jesus was asked the question, who do I not have to love? It came in the form of, who is my neighbor? But really, the question was, who do I not have to love? Well, how does Jesus answer that question? He answered it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, with the parable of the Good Samaritan. The moral of that story was that everyone is our neighbor. How do we recognize someone that we are called to love? The answer is if they are in each other. We are to love each other. That means if I meet you and you got a pulse, God wants me to love you. If you meet me and I've got a pulse, God wants you to love me. We are are called to love We're called to love all that God brings us in contact with. Now, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? That's a great question. It's an important question for us to ask, especially in our culture. 
Well, we get insight into that in verses 9 and 10. In those two verses, we see that love is an action, not just an emotion. Love is an action, not just an emotion. This is really important because we live in a culture that wants to describe love as some kind of a feeling. We mean by love that it's some kind of a feeling that we have. We fall into love. Therefore, we can fall out of love. This is the common idea of love associated with romantic love. And you know what? It's been used to inflict great pain on a number of you in this room. I know that, that there are, are some of you that somebody that you were married to for years has come up to you and looked you in the eye and said, I don't love you anymore. And there are others of you who are sitting here in this room, and, and though you've never said that, you've thought that. And here's what's happening when you think that or when you say that and the, the pain that that has inflicted. What's happening is in your head, you're equating love to an emotion. You're equating love to a feeling, a condition that you once were in, but now you have fallen out of. But friends, that's not how the Bible describes love. The Bible doesn't describe love as merely a feeling or an emotion. It describes it as a verb, as an action. It's something that we do. If you're here today and you have been tempted to say to a spouse or someone in a committed relationship with you, say, I'm not in love with you anymore. I, I, don't, I don't love you anymore. Stop for a moment and, and realize that, biblically speaking, the love that we are called to is, is an action. Therefore, it's a choice. We're called to love. Love is an action. It's not just an emotion. It's something that comes clear in these, these, these words here. Seen really in verse 10 in a, in a summary. We'll back up and see verse 9 in just a moment. But in verse 10, he makes this summary statement. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What, is it, what does it mean to love? It means to serve another. It means to place our wants, needs, and desires below theirs, to seek their, their good, their betterment over our own. That's what it means to love. It's a choice. It's an action. And it's such a foundational principle that Paul lets us know that you can, just as Jesus did, that you can summarize all of the commandments that God has given under this principle of loving one another. You could summarize them all under that principle. I mean, think about this. Moses goes up on the mountain and comes back with how many commandments? Came back with 10 commandments, right? The rest of the Old Testament will expound those 10 commandments into many, many, many more. Why did God go to all of that detail? We went into that detail because we needed instruction because of the hardness of our hearts. But he could summarize the nature of those commands by merely telling us that we are to love each other. Because if we are loving each other, we will do the commands of God. The illustration comes in verse 9, as a number of the commandments that God has given are, are mentioned and are given as exhibit A, B, C, D, and E of what it looks like for love and the law to come together. The first one that he mentions there is he says, you shall not commit adultery. I think it's fascinating that he begins with that command about adultery, because adultery is something that often we associate with love or passion, and yet he mentions it here as clearly an act that is not loving. 
There's no love in adultery. Adultery hurts both the one that it's committed with as well as the rest of the family that is connected to that relationship. It's a very unloving thing to do. You're hating someone else when you commit adultery. If you were to love them, if you were to serve your neighbor instead of yourself, you would not commit adultery. The next one he mentions is, you shall not murder. Now, this one is somewhat self-evident, right? It's hard to commit a loving murder. He goes on, you shall not steal. What are you doing when you steal? When you steal, you're saying, what you have is better in my pocket. So I'm going to hurt you by taking from you so that I can have what I want. You can't lovingly steal. I don't care what Robin Hood said, right? You shall not covet. Again, it's a similar idea. Think that you would be the more deserving recipient of any blessing. It's not seeking to love another. It's seeking to serve yourself. In this way, all of these commandments and, and many others could be summarized in this command. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's interesting is some have seen this phrasing here in verse 9, and they've said, see there, the Bible indicates that we are to love ourselves as if we needed any encouragement to love ourselves. I don't think that the primary teaching of that phrase has anything to do with our love of self. It's talking about the normal human instinct is to love ourselves. We're all born this way. Unless there is a disease or something that is wrong, children will cry when they're hungry. Why do they cry? To let us know that they need something to eat, and we respond to their need. Moms and dads, we we know this, right? There's an instinct that is placed within us to to seek our own provision. If we're cold, your your baby's cold, they cry. If they're hot, they cry. We're we're, we're built from the very beginning with this idea of self-preservation and seeking our own interests. But to love your neighbor as yourself is to take that instinct and to apply it in how you care for others, not just for yourself. William Mount says this in New Testament Scholar. He says, what is commanded is that we are to have the same loving regard for others that we have instinctively for ourselves. We're to care for for their needs. When someone is grieving, we grieve with them. Why? Because we are caring for them as we would need cared for. When when someone is, is lonely, we provide companionship. Why? Because we are reaching out to them. When, when someone is hungry, we provide food. Why? Because we are reaching out and extending instinctively what we would have done for ourselves, we're doing for others. This is the call. This is what it means to love. It's what should characterize the nature of the relationships that we have in Christ. Now, what's interesting is he goes on in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, and he makes this this phrase that is very important to understand this passage. He says, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because we we read it twice in this passage. It's mentioned also in verse 8, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, what is the connection in the relationship between love and law? You know, we oftentimes don't recognize that connection very well in our culture because, again, we think of love as an emotion or a feeling. But love is an action, and those 
actions have a specified order and step and, and, and way. And we are called to, to love others according to the law of God. We're called to, to seek others best according to God. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we can have this weird idea of love uh, that says that, you know what, it is loving for me to enable the addiction of somebody I love because I love them. It's loving for me to not confront sin that is tearing apart the life of a friend because I love them. Friends, that's not love. Love is a fulfillment of the law. It works together with God's direction and purposes. John Stott sees this connection this way. He says, for love and law, they need each other. Love needs law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. Friends, when we are to love others as Christ wants us to love others, we will do so according to God's truth, and we will seek their interest above our own. Love is an action. It's not an emotion. Now, there are are people in our lives that we more naturally exhibit love with, and then there are those that it is hard to love. And I want to focus just for a moment on those in your life that are hard for you to love. And I want to ask you, is it easy to love them? And you said, no, you just asked me to think of somebody that's hard to love. It's not easy. I just want to acknowledge it's, it's tough. It's tough for us to apply this in certain relationships. It's, it's difficult for us to love some people. It's easy for us to talk about love as an emotion or a feeling because we can sit in this room and go, yeah, I love them. But then when we go home, will we love them as a verb? Will we love them as an action? Will we seek their best interest above our own? It's tough. Now, this is one of those moments and one of those messages. If I just ended right there with those three verses and with those two points, um, you would feel weighted down. You would walk in here, and I have effectively put a 50-pound weight in your backpack and said, go out and love people. And you would have crawled your way to the door and gone home and hoped to have forgotten some of what I said or tried it and felt discouraged. Friends, for those of us that it is difficult for us to love, which is all of us, there's hope. And the hope that we have is found in Christ that makes it possible for us to love as he has called us to love. And we see that in the balance of the New Testament with this idea, love is taught by God and produced in his power. Love is taught by God and it's produced in his power. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 In verse 9 says this, Paul writes and says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. We might ask yourself the question, if if we have been taught by God to love one another, what, where, when, how? How have we been taught by God to love one another? Well, the answer for that comes that we have been taught by God to love one another through Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who said in John 15, 13, that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And not only did Jesus teach that, and not only did he say that, but he lived that out. Jesus came to this earth to lay down his life for us, his friends, as a sacrifice for our sins. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells it this way, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have been taught what love is, what it looks like by a God who loves us and who communicated it to us through Christ. So we've been taught this love by God. But not only have we been taught this love by God, but he has given us his Holy Spirit that his love might be produced in us. From Romans 5, 8, just allow your eyes to float back up the page just a little bit to chapter 5 and verse 5. Paul writes and says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul makes a big deal in the book of Romans about the fact that when we have been reconciled to God through Christ, that one of the gifts that God has given us is the Holy Spirit to come and to reside within our hearts, to empower us to live out the things that He has called us to. In our series on Romans, we've seen that God doesn't just give us a command and a manual, but He moves in with us through His Holy Spirit to, to guide us and direct us in life. And when God shows up in the Holy Spirit in our lives, which is present in the life of all who know Christ, then the character of God is present also. And His character is a character of love. How is it a reasonable expectation that Christians would love those around us? It's reasonable because the Spirit of God resides within us and wants to love others through us. Think of what Paul said over in the book of Galatians in chapter number 5, verse 22. This, this famous uh, section there where Paul uses an, an analogy of trees and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The very first fruit of the Spirit that is mentioned there is the fruit of love. It's what should be characterized in our relationships. It's what others should experience when they interact with us. Because if the Spirit of God is present within us and we are relying upon Him, fulfilling the law by loving others, then the others will experience the love of Christ through us. God doesn't just call us to love, but God equips us to love. He doesn't just expect us to love, but He works with us and through us to love those around us, even those that are difficult for us to love. See, friends, there is, is great hope for us. Now, I want you to, to turn back and look again at the, the little piece of paper or your, your app or whatever you wrote down your word on uh, earlier at the beginning of the message. I want you to go back and look at that. When you wrote that word down, you were probably thinking of different things. Some of you were thinking about a friend or a family member, but, but I want you now to turn it internally. I want you to think about yourself. How would those in your life describe your interactions with them? Would they describe it by saying love? When I say that, that brings sorrow to some, I know, because you think of the ways that you have hurt people. We're very familiar with our own failings and faults. But know this, friends, there's hope. There is hope that from this point forward, I don't care about what's happened in the past, from this point forward, it is possible for our relationships to be characterized by the love of God. As we respond to His Word, equipped with the Spirit within us. Now, now, some of you who are here today are hearing this and you, you go, yes, 
This is a great reminder of a truth I already know. This reminds me to be reliant upon the Spirit of God, to, to walk with Him, to, to, to walk in this direction of fulfilling the law by living in love. And, and you're encouraged by that and the power of the Spirit, and you're walking out of here charged up that way. But I believe that in a room this size, there are others who are hearing this message that are, are thinking, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to begin with living a life of love. And friends, if that's you, if you're here today and you don't know where it begins, let me tell you where it begins. It begins with knowing that God loves you. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, we saw earlier, God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, take all of the penalty and judgment that our sins deserve, and to take him upon Christ so that we might be forgiven. And he did so while we were still sinners. That means that if you're here today and you've never begun a relationship with Christ, know that your next step is not to leave this room and go live a better life for a number of weeks, months, or years to where your spiritual resume is somehow then going to be pleasing to a holy God. That's not what God desires. What God desires of you in this moment, if you don't know Christ, is that you would come to know him merely by believing that Jesus is who he says he is and that he came to do what he came to do in receiving the forgiveness that is offered to us through the cross. And when we do that, when we embrace that gift, then the Spirit of God comes to reside within us, making it possible for our relationships to be known by love and not something else. We're going to end our, our service today um, by singing a song. And, and the song that we're going to sing talks about uh, Jesus as a cornerstone. It's this idea that if our, house, or if our, our lives are like a house, uh, there's a foundational cornerstone that holds it all together. What are you depending on in your life? Are you ultimately counting on yourself and your, your own worth and accomplishments? Or is your cornerstone of your life something else? Is your cornerstone of your life Jesus Christ? The opportunity exists for us today to build our, our houses on the foundation of Christ. And if you're here today and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, I ask you when we sing this song, sing it for the first time with belief, believing that Jesus is who he says he is. Sing it as a prayer. If for those of us who have, have believed this for a long time, this is a reminder for us as we sing today, we can sing it as a prayer of thanksgiving and truth in life for all that God has done for us and the love that he can live through us as we trust in him. So we're going to sing this song as a prayer, and in the middle, I'll, I'll give us an opportunity to respond to that. But let's first pray. Father, we thank you for just the, the privilege and the opportunity to gather and to worship. We thank you for this, this great truth and call for us to love. And we pray that you would just, Father, help us to first rest in your love for us, and that in that love we would be taught what it means to love, and that we would be equipped by your Spirit that we might love others. Father, thank you for the love that you have for each of us, and we come before you now trusting in Jesus' name. Amen.